Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. This is Gracie with Self Care with Gracie. It's nice to be together and, and podcasting again. Um, this is the Friday before the midterm elections and it's just I'm just feeling a lot of everything in the air right now. And somehow in these conversations around self-care, I always get more grounded. So thank you for letting me um, come into your ears. And I'm very honored by the guest I have today. Um, uh, the pronouns that they use are they, them, theirs. It's uh, Rochelle Faithful. And hello, Rochelle. Thank you for being hey. here. Hey, Gracie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm going to read your bio. I love your bio. Rochelle, thank you. Rochelle Faithful is a multidisciplinarian folk healing artist and healing justice practitioner rooted in the African diasporic tradition of conjure. They were born in Washington, D.C. and raised in Virginia with a strong affinity to their southern family line in Georgia, Alabama, and Texas. Faithful supports local, nas national and local activists of all backgrounds, particularly leaders of black liberation movements. They are known for creating spaces to help activists identify and process trauma and invest in healing justice frameworks. Their work has been featured in national publications including Color Lines, The Root, Everyday Feminism, HuffPost, among others. They also publish their own words in several books and law review articles. Faithful is a former shaman in residence at Free Body Works. Before formal shamanic initiation, Rochelle was a healing-oriented community organizer and people's lawyer. Oh. Yes, welcome. <laughs> and I, I wanted to talk to Rochelle for many reasons. I, I took a workshop uh, probably about a year ago, maybe a little bit less, around white supremacy and spiritual communities and spiritual bypass. Uh, you taught it with Virginia Rosenberg, who is an astrologist who lives in North Carolina. And it was really helpful for me to hear just so many of the traditions that I was raised in and teaching around yoga and self-care and Buddhism and looking at it within the framework of, of white supremacy and how even these, these parts of our traditions that can feel very healing and helpful when not met with awareness around the culture and the society that they're in, they can become harmful to those who are not holding power within a society. So I'm very grateful for that workshop and it stuck in my mind. Also, about a month ago, a friend of mine turned me onto a podcast called The Dream, and it's a podcast of about multi-level marketing. And for those of you who aren't familiar, multi-level marketing is, is a, a, a business structure where um, it's a pyramid scheme, where someone at the top would be able to make money by um, taking people below them to start to sell these products. And the products can range from essential oils to skincare products to cleaning solutions. And it's, it's not that the products are, it, there's anything wrong with them, it's that the business model itself only really works if you're able to bring more people under you who will sell it. And the only way that people at the top make money is by people at the bottom having to hustle really hard. And what happens in these, these models is that people um, at the bottom, at the market becomes saturated, so it's really hard to make money. But I, I'm, I was surprised to listen to this podcast because I know a lot of people who are in multi-level marketing and I, I use products from multi-level marketing and I've never been super thoughtful about what it is and who's advantaged in that and who's not advantaged in that. And within the podcast as well, I, I really recommend listening to it because it goes very deep into the different layers of, of who started multi-level marketing and who benefits from it and who doesn't. And they started to talk about this, this way that they were ground, uh, 
created from um, empowerment speech and this idea that you have to empower yourself and positive thinking. And I was like, oh no, this is what I was raised in. I was like raised a Christian scientist until I, my mom switched to Unity Church and this power of super positivity. So I was like, I need to call Rochelle and see if we can just have a conversation about this because it is it is a little bit tricky to, to break it all down. So I appreciate you being here. And I before we get into like the conversation about the dream, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you and, um, and your path, which is really interesting, and, and what has brought you to doing the work that you do around these um, healing justice frameworks. Well, thank you so much for that introduction. And you also turned me on to the Dream Podcast. And I'm still listening. It is very fascinating. And I always love to be asked about and ask other people about origin stories. So I'll just give a brief version so there's just a little bit more context about where I come from. Uh, I am currently based in DC. DC is really my home city. And as I mentioned in my bio, home is both DC, the city, and Virginia with with just like a deep connection to my family in the South. And I grew up in the suburbs. I had a lot of, in some ways, a lot of economic and class privilege that I still try to be mindful about as I work very closely and in solidarity with folks who are what I call like materially deprived, um, struggle for survival. And that's not only in terms of with resources, like material resources, but also uh, along different kinds of circumstances and conditions. But I was politicized in high school, actually, when I came out. And it wasn't the only thing. I also had like a lot of politics around the Iraq war, which was, or the second Iraq war, which was beginning to happen. But coming out during that time um, helped us kind of, in in an environment where I was also one of few um, kids of color, uh, definitely there were fewer black students um, where I lived or black black families where I lived. I just was really politicized at a young age. Um, and I didn't come into my spiritual consciousness more until after college, after I did a lot of student activism and had begun training as an organizer. So I was kind of trained in old style organizing and realized that though I, there were aspects of it that I found I was really good at, and I think I uh, helped others through, it really just wasn't the core of what I felt my uh, vocation to be in life. It wasn't quite purpose aligned. And I made the decision to use some of my privilege to go to law school, where I had intended to be a people's lawyer. And I was fortunate that through that time, I was able to stay really true to my values, come out as a movement lawyer and do work back in Virginia around felony disenfranchisement. And that is an issue that's highlighted as we're coming up on the midterm elections, because in Florida, they're about to vote on whether uh, folks who have been disenfranchised through a conviction can actually come back onto the voter rolls. And Florida is actually was very similar to Virginia until we had some changes where we had like whole swaths of the, particularly the African-American community that were literally invisible because of disenfranchisement. So I was grateful to do that work for a while. And I think some of the most powerful aspects of that work actually wasn't the legal work that I did or even some of the campaign 
that we we waged and actually won. It was actually just, and not even the political education piece, so that was really important in terms of building power in the community. I think it was going to, I think the most important aspect was me witnessing people. And these are people, right, who've been through all kinds of levels of trauma, uh, much of which happened through the criminal system, the so-called criminal justice system. So I was bearing witness to folks. And this was happening at the same time I was being introduced to some of my gifts as an energy healer, some of my own intuitive gifts, and getting deeper into my spiritual life. So as I approached my own burnout, at the end of about four years of doing full-time lawyering, much of it on the road, uh, holding a lot of um, other folks' trauma, but also experiencing some of my own vicarious trauma, I made the decision to leave full-time legal work and to put into the forefront that spiritual work and these spiritual gifts. I was grateful to have a foundations teacher who ended up being a shamanic practitioner. So then through a process of like a year and a half, I was able to um, really uh, understand my spiritual gifts, root it in the tradition of conjure, which is the generations old African-American shamanic tradition that is often identified as a folk tradition. And through that training and experience, I'm at a point where I've really integrated a lot of those worlds, right? So there's some aspects that uh, of me that are, are kind of more my sacred role as a healer, but I also still bring a lot of my, my old like kind of political analysis and strategy building for my organizing days, as well as my uh, kind of technical expertise and understanding of structures uh, for my legal training. So I think all those serve uh, to bring me where I am having this conversation with you where we're talking about kind of these intersections, I think, of politics and spirituality where um, I think it's so important in our spiritual worlds that we have some sense of real groundedness about who we are, uh, the conditions that allow us to be who we are spiritually, right? And not ignore the, the very real social conditions that impact all of us and our traumas, as well as, you know, I play a lot of role in these activist communities where I'm trying to get people to be spiritually grounded and rooted too, where it's not all about kind of the uh, mental strategy making of how to create change in systems, but bringing it back to our bodies, to ourselves, to a sense of connectedness to each other, nature, um, family lines in some cases, and that of spirit, however we define it. And I think my overall perspective is that we can't have uh, a real robust spirituality or we can't be strong healers if we have no sense of politic because politic really mirrors the experiences and trauma people have. And then we can't be effective uh, change makers if we aren't grounded and have a sense of greater connectedness. And I, I think I said at those intersections. Thank you for sharing your story. I I really think that how how you're bringing these two realities together is the model for the future. Like I think you're just from listening to it. I'm like this is this is what we need, and and people to move forward is an ability to hold both the spiritual and the political at the same time. So I I really appreciate your modeling that for for me and for us. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's just it's funny how 
where we're led, right? So I, I trust that there are many of us who, and I see your practices fitting into this Gracie's, like some of us are working in the future and folks are meeting us there. I think that's beautiful. It's exciting I, that when you say that, it makes me feel some hope, which is a little hard to come by just watching the news right now. So thanks for that. Real talk. I understand. Okay. I want to talk about the dream and mm -hmm. I want, I'm meaning the podcast, but also what, what the podcast really made me think of is how we're sold the dream in so many different forms in our lives and um, including and especially in religion and spirituality. So. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Like when you look at um, modern spiritual practice that's that's happening in um, mass culture right now, like how do you think the dream is really sold to us? Um, and and I guess my languaging and that makes kind of uh, bringing in like the ideas of consumerism and um, and political influences as well. I hear you. I also have a point of view about it and a strong one at that. I am uh, a person, and I appreciate you like bringing these together for folks to understand, because part of what we began to talk about the workshop but didn't get so deeply into that you attended was what I call spiritual materialism, right? The ways in which the consumerism, ultra-capitalism get conflated with spirituality in a way that, that folks actually, I think, end up more so worshiping at the altar of capitalism than they do actually spirituality and I, I think that happens with that conflation when people are not paying attention and we see this in a lot of different ways in the US and it ranges right I think when we look at more dominant culture and spirituality and in that I'm talking about Christianity there is there's definitely whole uh, whole schools of thought in, in, in Christianity these days um, starting as the dream talks about too, I'm glad they actually touch on it, getting into uh, the whole idea of prosperity gospel, right? Yes. And really linking uh, one's economic success from a very individualistic point of view, uh, individualistic capitalism point of view, as being that reflected of like your spiritual growth or your, um, your worthiness in the eyes of God or uh, you're, it's not really actually too much different to me from like indulgences, right, <laughs> of, of a century ago. You can like essentially earn or buy your way into heaven. So there's not a huge distinction to me between that school of thought and something we see in a lot of the spiritualist communities around manifestation theory. And I'll start there and then we can see where we go. But a lot of this theory around new thought and manifestation is like if you have enough positive thinking, if you um, buy all these things from certain people and really put your mind to it, you, you will manifest all the financial and material resources that you need. And can continue just to, to live comfortably. And to me, that is inherently rooted in a mindset that ignores many of the economic and social conditions that we actually live in, and then therefore has its impact, just like the ways that we internalize super capitalism of blaming ourselves when things don't work out, 
when in reality we're also working very much in these systemic conditions. So while I think it's so real that many of us want to get out of those trappings of the capitalist treadmill, it's not by our sheer will, right, or our, our bootstraps, right, spiritual bootstraps that we will be able to climb up. It really is a much more nuanced dance of understanding um, our own sense of possibility, understanding our own conditions. And I think there is role for a healthy sense of imagination and vision. But all these things have to be considered in cultivating what we're actually, quote, manifesting. And I think that so often gets lost in this, uh, this very kind of uh, constructed, um, unreal, I think, to me, fiction of spiritual materialism and manifestation theory. So we'll start there because most people I know are just, it's not for lack of positive thinking, lack of sheer will or effort. Many people are hustling to try to survive, much less see some sort of um, economic and financial comfort. Um, and I've seen people be use their, so much creative resourcing to get to where they need to be. Um, but it's, it's, it's not about that, and it's not so individualistic, right? So from, from both the tradition I hail from and the communities that I occupy, it really is a collective question of like, how are we resourcing each other? And how can we allow each other all to be lifted up? And that is in direct tension to, I think, this manifestation theory. I would love your thoughts, Gracie, but that's, that's where we're starting. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you for sharing all that. I, I just was nodding my head a lot and then shaking my head at the like indulgences buying your way into heaven part of it. But it is, it is so true that, and I think, I think to really understand um, the present, we have to understand the past, of course. Um, in my own life, I have to understand that I, my grandparents and my mom's side, they met in a Christian science study group I think most people know about Christian science, like people don't go to the hospital or don't go to the doctor. But what's underneath that is the idea that like your thoughts are manifestations and that you should be able to control the manifestations of your mind. And mm -hmm. if you do get sick, it's like a lack of faith. Or if something bad happens to you, it's a lack of like a communion with God. Mm -hmm. Which I was raised in that. My mom, when um, she kind of lost religion and spirituality for a while and when she got sober she got back into it and we went to unity church which is actually kind of an offshoot of christian science thought it was like around that time there were a lot of people coming together to make prayer groups and really getting focused in on like the power of the mind and manifestation so i was raised in um, unity church and particularly the youth of unity um, youth group which is like one of the best experiences of my life I, it was like mm -hmm hundreds of teenagers getting together in Unity Village in Kansas City of like a really pretty racially diverse, um, probably not so economically diverse group of people that really were about me meditation, positivity, affection for each other, just empowerment, lifting each other up. And so there, there's a lot of positive in all of that. And I think that's where all of this gets so complex. When we look at these um, prosperity gospels and law of attraction and how we manifest like of course there are tools in there that are helpful for us of just being able to realize that we do we want to focus on positive things and that that's helpful when we do it and we need that for upliftment but what I did not get in all of that was any kind of ability to handle conflicts 
any ability to be able to handle hard experiences in my own life or other people's lives and definitely of a source of guilt or shame whenever something either be it a negative thought from me a hard reality in somebody else is experience or me not feeling mm -hmm. like I wasn't able to achieve one of the goals that I, I wanted to achieve in my life it all felt like it was this moral failing from me and mm -hmm. that there was something I needed to change and this is like up to the present moment and it's mm -hmm. um, even when I started this business doing self-care I was I was kind of sold the dream by the person who was teaching um, business coaching to me at the time of like mm -hmm. you have to work just this number of hours a week and then you can like own homes in different places and that you fulfilling your purpose will um, will help you earn all this money and then earning all this money will help you fulfill the purpose and again I think that there are there is some truth in all of that too that like fulfilling your purpose maybe it does bring money and that maybe we are working too hard in a capitalist society but I was definitely sold as dreams that I would in exchange give a large sum of money for me to be able to figure out how to do this so I, I see in my own life how easy it is to kind of to like just go through my Instagram feed and want to focus on the people out there that are talking about how they they figured it out <laughs> and that they got to this place where they're not they're not suffering anymore and that they're making seven figures and right. living on the beach and that's I still feel like it's a very intoxicating dream. In, in the podcast, The Dream, they talk about that. The, um, the hosts that break it all down is really that people who get into this multi-level marketing, they're sold this dream of like, oh, you just, you just have to work a little bit every week and you get to invite your friends. It's like this big party. When the reality of it is it's really hard to sell these products and, um, and so the people themselves, they end up buying them themselves so they can make their quotas. People go into debt pretty often. I think right. they said 97% of people in multi-level marketing don't make money from it, it's not profitable, but still this, this, the ability for the people at the top to make a lot of money is that they're able to sell this dream over and over again. And also within multi-level marketing, it's one of the most underreported business fraud. So people aren't coming forward. I think because within being sold the dream, they're also sold the idea that if, it, if they don't live up to these standards, it's because something is wrong with them. Exactly. And they, they go back into one of the original ones um, called Holiday Magic. It's like in the 1950s. This guy who started it, if listen to the podcast, super crazy guy. And um, he's saying, if, it, if you can't make this work for you, you're either stupid, lazy, greedy. I forget the last one. But it's like, like the amount of shame that's built into that. Like, who's going to come forward and say that it, it didn't work for them at that point? Exactly. It's, it's just a trap. And... There's a lot to say about it. I first, I appreciate um, you making this direct li link to Christian Science because, interestingly, my father was raised in a home that's Christian Science. Really? Yeah, and I mean, definitely wasn't adherent to a lot of the different philosophies and practice. Um, I think he appreciated kind of some of the feminist perspective, maybe of the religion, and that's arguable, but that's his interpretation of that. Uh, and right, I, I, I think kind of the just um, more science of mind approach, which is, which I think, you know, to a certain degree is true, right? So as an energy healer and a person who works on the ancestral realms, I certainly appreciate that there's always spiritual dimensions to whatever hap like exists on the material realm. Um, I don't believe that it's a direct causation, right? So that's another reason why I'm very, very skeptical of 
would be inherently skeptical, right, of any kind of spiritual system that claims, or moral system that claims, like, there's some one for, for one causation, right? Like, whatever I am doing or not doing will directly impact into the material realm. Doesn't make sense to me because I think there's still a lot of nuance and other um, forces that can impact, right, our realities on this realm. But I, I really appreciate you making that link too, because um, it doesn't only apply to how we exist economically, um, but also it's a part of much broader spiritual principle that I I find more nuance in, and I think you do too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I I really uh, want to stress with the dream that. I appreciate the what they, I think they really do a great job bringing out is that just like these you know multi-level corporations and companies, this just structurally, right? <laughs> it's it's nearly impossible to achieve what they say you will achieve, right? And that's I think what we're talking about, and some people overlook about some of these aspects of of how we equate some of these spiritual beliefs with people's conditions, right? Because what we're talking about is it's it's actually, not only is it set up to be shame-based, it is almost structurally impossible to achieve what they say, right? <laughs> so what, what gives? And I think the more folks can interrogate that structural side, the more we might be able to make linkages to how we actually like live our our own lives absolutely and i I really i want to just speak to the listener right now of like we're we're throwing a lot of ideas out all at once here bringing we're bringing a lot of systems together and if you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed or like there's a lot of things just that's normal and i i feel the same way when we start to like bring it all together but what what rochelle what you're saying that's so helpful is like this is personal like it's like you can kind of imagine about how other people are struggling in this abstract sense of the way but i think for for us to really get in touch with how how the world is struggling we have to see how much we're struggling first and like come out of denial that that we're just keeping it all together in, in this hyper individualistic way or failing because we can't keep it together in this hyper individualistic way so i'd, I'd like to um talk about denial because that was something that came mm. out of the workshop with you, with you in Virginia that I, I was really thought was so important was how much when we do this practice of spiritual bypass which um, I understand is kind of using spirituality as a way to not feel feelings and look at hard realities and be mm-hmm. part of the whole but I, I'd love to hear how you describe it but it's it's rooted in, in a denial of, of, of something and um, so I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit more about how you think that how you see denial working and how that affects spiritual belief and practice sure that's a really great question i i love your definition of spiritual bypass it's not too different from my own it it really is just what to me it it is the escapist option of spirituality which tries to escape our bodies tries to escape our actual lived realities and tries to escape uh, our lived conditions to um, achieve whatever spiritual zenith we envision exists. And I am both a person that comes from a very, like a very pragmatic tradition, right? A tradition of 
people who were enslaved, right? And how they actually had to have a spirituality that worked. Um, and I just, I'm also what, uh, what double earth, like year of the ox, like year of the wood ox. I'm just a very pragmatic person. So I am always interested in and approach my own spiritual life and my spiritual practice from like what is real. And sometimes that does get extended to what is possible, right? Because I think we need imagination to live into. But we, we start with what it, what is actually true. And it's when you come from such a pragmatic perspective, um, I think it's easy to see the delusion that exists that creates all these limitations in all aspects of our lives, including our spiritual lives. And what I find really both bizarre and a little frightening about how some of us approach our spiritual life, even if we're outside the, the most popular or dominant traditions, is that we're still coming from the perspective of what we hope to be true rather than what is true. And in existing in this realm of what we hope to be true, um, I think so often we set ourselves up for unnecessary pain. We set ourselves up for um, so much additional labor. Um, and I, I mean that from a uh, kind of more physical sense of like work we do in addition to emotional labor and hardship. Uh, starting from that place of like what we hope to be true rather than what is so. Uh, so, so often, whether I'm in sacred space or more secular space, we, we start with an inventory of just what is so, and we try to approach it non-judgmentally so that we can actually um, assess what is true and, and go from there. And that's so important because especially from a healing perspective, right? So if we are working with a set of, if, if, if we are thinking of ourselves as, um, eh, I don't want to say analogous to doctors, but it would, I think, be bizarre to a lot of people if a doctor received um, some intake, like an intake from, from folks, starting with like what you hope is true, right? rather than like what your symptoms actually are. But that's essentially what so many of us are doing um, from a spiritual perspective, but also from a kind of more social perspective. And those two really just amplify each other in a sense of fiction that we can do so much work to try to address conditions in that fiction, but still the outcomes just won't make sense to us ultimately. It won't be really true for us because we're operating from the fiction and not from what's true. So the way that looks like is we might be trying really hard to, and I'll try to root it also in kind of the oh, my own practices uh, and the work that I do in the world. So sometimes people come to me in kind of an old fashioned conjure sense where they want like me to help them address why they aren't making money, right? And they want to have me just like do a spell or 
or or do some prayer work around it. I'm like, I'm not that kind of practitioner. What I really want to know is, what are you doing now? Um, why is it so difficult for you to exist in the skin that you're in and what you're doing now? Um, what would you like to be doing? And where are your actual gifts in the world, your like main contributions? And what other conditions are impacting for you to live just more confidently and to live in a way that allows you to feel that you can create some sort of pathway for yourself that will get you from point A to point B, right? And so often that has to do with like family responsibilities people actually have, like real responsibilities they have to meet. Sometimes that has to do with real deep sense of self-confidence and self-loathing that comes from years of being in very hypercritical environments, judgmental environments, or just abusive environments. Um, sometimes that has to do with opportunities that aren't, don't actually exist for people because they weren't able to finish their education or that was never an, op like a, that was never, uh, an option for them. So they're, they're working within some of their actual limitations and don't feel real sense that they can get the support that they need to be building, right? So that's the difference between like coming from a really rooted sense of where folks are and looking at what's possible and creating spaciousness and emotional well-being and real just vision visioning and planning to get them to where they need to be from like this this sense of like if i buy into this spiritual system and you know invest so-called invest in even like this spiritual coach that will solve all my problems um, I think we're really doing ourselves a disservice in operating that denial and also doing ourselves a disservice um, that actually has a way of, of disempowering us, right? Yes, yeah, I, I see such a, a direct correlation to what you just shared uh, to how people approach self-care, which mm -hmm. I think it's, um, people want, it's the phrase I use is the biggest loser moment. It's mm -hmm. like that this moment where everything we just turn it all around and and we live up to that standard that we think that we should be living up to. And what when people come to work on their self-care, I'm like, yeah, I, but you kind of just got to start smaller than that. And like, what are you doing already? Well, let's celebrate that for a little while and let's like change some mm -hmm. perspectives around like, why is it so hard to practice self-care when you're expected to work 50 hours a week and you yes. come home and take care of everybody else? Like, so maybe there are some things. And, and the people who get it, get it. And it's amazing the kind of radical changes you can make in, in your self-care if you're willing to embrace what I call like a very unsexy way of looking at self-care. Like you're saying, yes. like, can we just get really clear on like where you want to go and how we're going to get there and then just stay accountable for those goals. But where I see people struggle, I think, is that they have such a strong attachment to the dream. And I, when I say people, I definitely mean myself too. It's like mm -hmm. I want... I want the dream to still be there. Like there's something hopeful and comforting in that. And and if I have to give up the dream for the unsexy little steps in the present moment, which also mean that I have to feel all my feelings 
and look at how um, upset the world is in so many ways. Like, I, there are days I kind of just want the dream back because it's, it's like, it's nice to hide, <laughs> but not really. I, I feel you, right? Who wants to take the red pill? <laughs> like, very, very few of us, right? Because I, I, I think it does require us to be, uh, you know, outside of the state of delusion, which both brings its own, like, real harsh and brutal realities about how the world actually is and what we hope it to be, um, what it requires of us. And it, it, it can bring, I think, its own sense of despair because things feel really big to so many of us when we are with the realities of what is. So I get it. And one of the first things I have to do if I'm doing any kind of long-term healing work, either one-on-one or with a group of folks or how I feel like my role in community can be in the communities that I travel is that we're starting from this place of what does this journey require of us? And often it's a lot. And as you said, it is messy. It is a it is a full out struggle. Sometimes it is a fight for our lives. And sometimes it is uh so uncertain, right? So one thing that might be true between the different communities that we serve is that we, we, I think, I see so many people and less so for me these days, but it was certainly true for most of my life, struggle with a profound sense of uncertainty because that uncertainty can, can, like, we, we don't trust necessarily that we are resourced to, to handle what can come, right? And we know that almost anything can arrive and have impact on us. So part of, for me even, my own sense of faith comes from simply, and this is why I also feel such a strong affinity to my own ancestors. What does it require of you to wake up every day, not know what's going to happen, and admit that you may not have a lot of control about what that is? And what, what does it require you of you to continue to wake up every day, to be present in your reality, to simply deal with it, and do that resourcing, right? Um, especially spiritually, psychically, energetically, not to do it alone, and to do it again, right? I think those are some of the more deeply existential trends I'm seeing in the world right now as our entire paradigm shifts. And it's the thing that makes self-care just non-negotiable, right? Because we cannot exist in the complexity and the brutality in the world that we live in and not create like care for us, uh, ourselves and for each other and expect this to work. But it's, I, I understand when you strip it all down and are actually encountering and negotiating that sort of reality every day, that you want to hang on to the dream. And yet, so many of us are, I think, losing many comforts around that, these sets of delusions and trying to come to terms with that and surviving it, right? And even doing better than that. Some of us are thriving, right? Some of us are really finding our gifts 
our purpose, our people, our place, um, and really learning what I think that deep, deep, deeper level of connection is. Yes, yes. You just said so many important things. I th- you just gave like a great definition of self-care of just that like doing it every single day, asking for support and then being willing to do it again tomorrow. Thank you for saying that. Mm-hmm. To me, that is self-care. And, and to talk about the, what are the gifts of coming out of denial too? And I, I basically, like I felt like about five, four years ago, I had the dream. I was like, you know, my coaching business was going well. I was leading retreats around the world. I was, I was doing all the mm-hmm. things. And I was, in, I was in India leading a retreat at an Ayurvedic center. And there was a, a, a monk, a French monk, who was from a Buddhist tradition. He was dying of pancreatic cancer. Mm-hmm. And he was there, and I would go like talk to him in his, his little cabin, and uh, and this one day he looks at me, he's like, you don't really love or trust yourself, you know that, <laughs> and I was like, he like cracked something, he cracked my dream, Ooh, and it mm-hmm. was really profound, like the way the words worked for me, um, and I I realized that I had been developing this exterior, but inside. Like it was a show, like on the outside, and there there was some things inside, of course. But I was like, I, my outside was developing a lot faster than my inside. It was like the tension between the two was getting really strong, and mm-hmm. it's, I started going to twelve step around um, growing up in a family with addiction mm-hmm. around that time, and it's it just it sucked. It sucked every step of the way of just yep. going coming out of denial, feeling the feelings. Except, it's given me my inner life back. Um, and that's what I think of as recovery. When we're in recovery, we're recovering our inner life, and that, and yes. from that has come humility and surrender, and the, and, um, and connection, as you said, and um, a feeling of trust. And I don't know the future, but I know how I feel in this moment, and and I know who I want to be, my mm-hmm. value system, and I can I can attune to that. And and those are like it's like if we have to give up the dream to get those things, I think that's like a pretty easy bargain. Um, <laughs> When when you're on the other side of it, I think in the beginning, before you start to come out of denial, it feels really scary. I love that reframing of it, and I can agree with you more, right? It's uh, That's the initial shock, and there is no reward greater than what you described, which is, to me, the, the, the actual reasons why we're here, the much truer, truer resonance with ourselves and one another, and actual fulfillment, because I, I think that's what so many of us are chasing when we sign on, or you know, many of us are conditioned in the dream, but for many of us who stay on and signed up to the dream, that's what we want. We want some sense of fulfillment, and fu- often fulfillment is stability and security is what I think a lot of people are seeking. And it's not until things are rocked for us that we really understand that that's, that's definitely a um, out, you know, inside, inside out process, um, and that has to be true regardless of what whatever we're trying to front. And many of us are fronting, right? <laughs> and that's the age that we're in. That is, in some places, what is externally rewarded, and it's also so precarious and so fragile. Fragile, you're right. It's so fragile. It's so it's so vulnerable. Like when you were talking before, I was like, oh, it's just it's vulnerable to wake up every day without the like defenses of the image 
that we want to be? I think it is. Um, is. Is vulnerability something that you think about or is that part of your practice at all? Oh, very deep. Yes, 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 yes. Because if, if part of our work in thinking about care more deeply, thinking about sustainably, sustainability, thinking about resilience and healing, for that to be true, right? And as you said, cut through these delusions, um, or as I've been talking about, and we've been talking about to, like working through delusions and what I call in our tradition, cutting to the bone. To do that, it, it requires homecoming. And that's not possible if we cannot open up, right? And that opening up, as you said, can feel like a cracking open. It can feel like an expansion. It can feel uh, a completely terrifying like sense of exposure. Often it's all these things and a lot more. And sometimes at the same time, right? But that to me, um, if, if, if folks are, aren't willing to continue to unlayer themselves and become more and more vulnerable, then you're just that much more distant from the truth. And that's truth with a lowercase t, but it's the truth that matters, right? And part of, I think, even allowing us to become skilled at care, and which, which is why I appreciate the level of self-care work you help people enter into, is that that care can support that vulnerability, right? The more you are feeling that more internally resourced sense of like care and resilience, the more you might feel able to open up and be with truth and be with that uncertainty and to admit things to yourself and admit things to others and have that just be part of your reality instead of feeling like it is risky, then you you create that balance for yourself, right? I can be this exposed, but I know how to care within that vulnerability. So we're often, yeah, that's a huge theme with so many people I'm supporting, and it's part of my own practice too. Part of my, I have this interesting dilemma now that I am pretty rooted as a community healer here in DC, is that a lot of people uh, try to put me on this pedestal. I'm like, please do not. <laughs> I, am, I am, I definitely benefit from the wisdom of being kind of a community cauldron for folks and our wisdom. And I've got my own things I'm working through and I am not ashamed. I'm completely humbled about that. I don't want to be seen as a guru and I don't want to be seen as um, someone who's figured it all out. I am a person that is fortunate enough to have a livelihood to think a lot about these things and be a lot like in these things, but it's, it is, um, I can't, I can't pretend as if I'm not, not only doing my own work, but also like want to be much more vulnerable with folks about how this impacts me and I respect other healers and visible people who are not trying to pretend that their human experience is not happening too. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you have a similar experience, Gracie, because I feel like you're holding a lot of space. People might project certain things onto you as well. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, well, I, 
thanks for saying that. Um, just about your own experience, it's really helpful for me to hear. And yeah, I, I think so. I, I think people maybe do project. I think it's hard not to project. Um, I've tried from the beginning of like when I would, basically when I first started to find teachers who were um, answering some of the questions that I was really asking, I realized that the teachers that were teaching me the most were the ones who were teaching from the places that they were struggling in and a willingness to share about how hard it can be and how confusing life can be. And I made a commitment when I was teaching yoga in the beginning of like, I wanna like tell stories and I wanna talk about how this practice of yoga is showing up, not in me having like a great practice on the mat, but more about how I'm, how I'm like responding to life and dealing with my own vulnerability. I probably wouldn't have had the language for that then. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think I've tried to keep sharing that, but it's, it's like, it's intoxicating um, to have people put you on that pedestal. I, I do feel when I, I feel both when I look at spiritual leaders who have fallen, um, meaning that they've, you know, committed some kind of act that has taken them off the pedestal. I feel both a lot of anger because I, I think when people expose their spiritual lives to you, it's, it's an incredible gift and it's very vulnerable. Yes. And when people exploit that, that to me feels like one of the deepest wrongs of just, you know, it's very complicated for people to get that space back when it has been manipulated. So I feel that, but I also feel some, you know, compassion. It's like, it's an addiction. And I mean, the dream is an addiction. And I think when, when you're on that pedestal, it's hard, it's hard to give up power once you have it. And I, and I just know for myself that I want to work with teachers and leaders and organizers who are, who are showing their vulnerabilities and willing to be in struggle with me. And I will definitely follow, you know, if I can see that that person is, is able to concede power in the moments that it's not helpful for them or for the group. And, and I know how hard it is for people to give it up too. It's like when I look at our kind of collective culture right now, I'm like, it's, people are addicted to making money. They're addicted to having mm-hmm. attention on them. And it's, it's coming from this vacuous inner life. And I know that, but it's still, uh, that was a long answer to your to your your inquiry, but yeah, I think it's a hard one. No, I appreciate that. I, I I've noticed even how you both are more oriented towards storytelling and also storytelling about your own life. That I can see can keep a person more humble, and also just more honest honest with those with whom they're engaging and in conversation about the journey that you're on. And I hear you about addictions. One of my favorite healers and thinkers, his name is Abdi Asadi, and I think I, I probably mentioned him in my body of work with Virginia. And he's an acupuncturist and body worker based in New York. He's Iranian American and just really brilliant. Has some new thought background, but also some shamanic background and some Eastern thoughts. He's a mix of things. But he is a person who identified and still identifies as an addict and really, I think, draws out in his work. I could recommend his book, Shadows on the Path. It's a pretty fast, it's really like substantive read, but it's also really short. And he does just a lot of thinking around like trying to draw out our addictions and spirituality. Uh, And it gets to some aspects of spiritual materialism too. And he and Dr. Gabar Monte are the people that have gotten me really thinking about this relationship between addiction 
and attachment and what we're not getting in our spiritual lives in in many uh, ways that we think about modern contemporary life. And you know, what, what, is, what are we trying to substitute for? Um, so these days I often ask the question, if I feel like I absolutely need something, I want to at least ask myself the question of what's, what's that attachment? And I want to be really careful about not leading people to believe that we don't have some deservingness around our needs, because we do, because we also live in a super violent world, right? And I think in the US, we live in a super violent culture, right? So a lot of people are actually deprived from really fundamental needs. And that's, I have a moral point of view about that, it's wrong. And folks should have access to a lot of these needs. At the same time, in a more kind of uh, spiritual, maybe sometimes esoteric sense, we have so much addiction in our culture because we don't actually have our, our, our truest needs fulfilled. What is that trying to substitute for? And if I feel so attached to this, what is that actually saying about where I am? And that's a question I, I bring myself to in the so like in, in my mundane life when I think about even what I'm eating. I'm a person that has a lot of access to a lot of good food and I have a largely plant-based diet and that's been true for a decade. And I had to get real this year about my relationship to sugar because sugar I had way too much of it in my diet and it's it wasn't a vanity thing, right? Like my family has a history of really poor bone health and that extends to our teeth, right? So I'm looking at ways in which my like dental health is being really impacted long term by having too much sugar. Um and that's not unconnected to what we think about shamanically is uh, as the, kind of the metaphor of, of food and our well-being. So then the question that follows for me is like, what is the sweetness I'm still not getting in my life mm-hmm. that I still crave? And that is something that we also, some of us apply collectively, thinking about the African-American experience and the rate of diabetes. And then like, what is that sweetness we're not getting in our day-to-day existence that's leading us to try to overindulge um, in these ways? And part of that too, right? Part of that story is also being denied our traditional food ways and having access to junk that's not food. But part of it too is like, even when we have access to good food, what are we eating too much of to compensate for that sweetness we're not getting? So that's like still a live question for me. And I think that is, I think you're getting to something really, really, really key about the relationship between addictions and even spiritual fulfillment. Oh, yeah, that's so interesting. It's, um, I don't know how, how much you know about Ayurveda and, and the six tastes and the, um, the do you, can I, can I just do a little bit here? Yeah, I know a little, but please, please share. Yeah, well, it's in, in Ayurveda, there are six tastes that, um, sweet, salty, pungent, like spicy, um, sour, astringent, and bitter. And, and it's, it's taught that if you're not getting one of the six tastes that, that you're not going to be fulfilled and you're going to keep having this hunger and it's going to create imbalances. 
and that's within like every meal. But I, I something I, I've thought of a lot is is like kind of these qualities in people. It's like oh, you meet your like sweet people and your bitter people, and I feel those like all these tastes in myself. So just when you said that, it made me it made me think about that and. And also in Ayurveda, they talk a lot about the quality of oiliness. It's called sneha. Mm -hmm. And sneha, it means means love. It's like being oily and being well-oiled. It's really important for your immune system and resilience and building something they call ojas, which is about like a a strong, resilient, um, connected feeling in the world. But that when you, it's taught that when you don't get enough love, you actually crave more of the oil. You want mm. to have that. And I think mm. about us kind of in, in our culture, like eating these like really kind of fatty foods and like that being such a big thing and even the animal flesh being a part of that. And it's like, I think we're, I think we're like craving that love still that we like so many of us didn't, didn't get enough of. Exactly. That, thank you for bringing that to a very old and very wise system of thought. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's so true for so many of us. And I think that's a whole nother conversation I would love yeah. to have yeah. with you about just like, yeah, the ways in which we um, are connected to feel, relate, show love in, in this particular moment. Yes, well, please, um, I could talk to you for a long time. I have, I have so many more questions, but I, I think it is time to wind it down. So uh, perhaps you can come back on the podcast. I'd love to have you back and, and go deeper into love, of course. That would be amazing. It would be a pleasure, absolutely. Uh, well, I, I always like to ask this last question, um, and I'm very curious to hear your response. of What, what, is, what does self-care mean for you in, in today in this moment? How is self-care defined in your mind and heart? I'll try to be specific. Uh, Self-care these days means that I actually block out time in my schedule that is completely mine and isn't with the intention of of doing nothing Um, and allowing myself to wonder and just do whatever I feel like to do at the moment. So it's unstructured. Self-care is me going to the Y, which is my new gym membership, and spending some time in like sweaty exercise because I love to nurture the athlete in me. But then also spending uh, just time allowing my body to recover in in the steam room where I can also be in my own meditative breath and self-care is also having a meal by myself on Saturdays which tend to be my my days off and really honoring the introvert in me um, while also allowing myself to have a good, yummy, um, intentional meal with myself. So those are just some examples. Um, There's a lot of philosophy and other things I'm doing too, but that's what it actually looks like. I, I really appreciate the specificity of your examples. I, there's nothing I love more than hearing how a person takes care of themselves. Like it just brings me a lot of inspiration. So thanks for sharing that. Absolutely. Well, Rochelle, it's been such a pleasure and I'm sure that people who are listening are, are curious about how to stay in touch with you. Can you share ways to stay connected to you and your work? Yes, and I love being in conversation with people who are like, 
get into a conversation, especially I've had in public with other brilliant people. So I, I always welcome, even if people don't need anything from me, I especially welcome people just saying, hey. So people can find me online. I'm pretty easy to find on the internet at Rochelle, R-I-C-H-A-E-L, spelled like Michael, faithful. Um, so RochelleFaithful.com is my website. I have a Facebook page, I'm on Instagram, and I'm learning how to use the gram a little bit more. And very often people do write to me through my website page. That's a totally great way to keep up with me. I have a newsletter that I put out pretty regularly, but if you really want to kind of keep up with, um, I'm, I seem to be producing a lot, even if it's not always events. So. Uh, I would love for folks to stay in conversation with me also on Facebook because that is, I have a Michelle Faithful Folk Healer page and I keep that pretty updated. Awesome. Thank you. Well, I can't wait. I can't wait to have you back. And until then, um, I just appreciate you and you sharing your wisdom and your gifts with us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I just feel like the more public conversations we can have about these things that are impacting all of us, the better off we are. So I am grateful for your podcast. I'm grateful for you for asking me to be on and totally hope to have some future conversations. Yay, great. And and for and for everyone who's listening right now, again, I think this was a lot. We, we brought in a lot of really big themes. I don't think that spirituality and politics are often discussed in the same breath as um, denial and capitalism so it's like take a few deep breaths listen again if you felt some resonance with it and and most importantly i think is to pay attention to your own life experience of like trusting your own sense of when it's safe to be open spiritual in a situation and um, examining how maybe you're set up to not succeed in terms of your own work and well-being and self-care and how that can relate to the experience of other people around you because I do believe that the more connected we are to the whole experience of humanity the more that we are each going to find our self-care and our healing so one step at a time day by day um, much love to you all much care and I will talk to you soon bye bye Hi, this is Gracie with Beautiful Life Self-Care. Thanks so much for listening to the show. I hope you learned something new. If you want to connect more, then visit me at selfcarewithgracie.com. There you can sign up for my weekly newsletter where on Wednesday afternoons, I'll send you more self-care practices, more inspiration, and more opportunity to connect to a community of people who really care about really good self-care. Also write me if you have any other questions or if you have ideas for future shows. My email address is selfcarewithgracie at gmail.com. Thanks a lot. And remember, keep putting yourself first and everything else will fall into place. <laughs>